I wanted to welcome you all here on behalf of the Community Scholar Program. The title for today's seventh annual Blue Cherry Pre-High Holiday Program is, called, is entitled Searching for God in Judaism, a Rationalist Theory of a Mystical Reality. Sounds pretty easy, right? That's a good title. I didn't know I gave yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Are people going to have to think today in the beautiful garden in the sun? I wanted to, uh, of course, thank Bobby Cherry. I think Bobby went in for hosting us for the seventh year, Bobby. Thank you. That is amazing, his seventh year. This is actually the beginning of the eighth year of the Community Scholar Program. And I wanted to thank you all for your contributions to CSP. As you may know, because I say it over every year about this time, we are funded almost entirely by you um, individuals in Orange County. We do generally get a grant each year from the Federation, although for some reason we didn't in the last 12 months, but I'm told we will get one, hopefully, in the next 12 months. And so this whole last year was funded by you 100%. So thank you. Your donations allow us to do programs like this and to bring some uh, of the greatest thinkers in the Jewish world to Orange County. I believe you got my email a few months ago saying that we're, right now we have... Uh, if I count the number of people we've brought, we're over 100 people in the last uh, seven years. So it's very impressive. I have a handout, uh, and I'm going to ask someone to circulate it. And it gives you an idea of what we're going to be doing in the next 12 months. So at your, at your leisure, take a look at it. Of course, our one-month scholar, we're going into our um, seventh annual one-month scholar, is uh, Professor Rachel Alior from Jerusalem. And she's an expert in Jewish mysticism. The overall topic for the one-month uh, program in January through February is Demystifying Jewish Mysticism. And, uh, and then you will see some of the other programs we are going to be offering. Uh, at the beginning, of, uh, I think it was here last year, I told you that we were going to um, honor an individual or individuals who attended the most programs in, in the year. And um, Ada Gilbert has with her the official award, you know, like there's the America's Cup and there's the World Cup. The CSP has the Kiddush Cup. <laughs> so we have the Kiddush Cup here. Ada, you stand with me and hold it. It's hard to see. And uh, it says, the CSP Kiddush Cup Learner of the Year 2008. Yeah, it's a little smudged, but we'll, we'll, the, the, they'll have to polish it. Now, the winners will be called up to get the cup. And the tradition that we decide is the winners take it home and can put it on their mantelpiece, but they have to bring it back. And uh, so we're going to have security taken from them. Winners will need a watch or something valuable. So the winners of the 2008 CS first annual uh, CSP Kiddush Cup are David and Ofra Wilner. Please come and get the Kiddush Cup. Many people attended many programs, but the Wilners attended the most in 2008. It's actually 5768. So um, please come get your Kiddush Cup. Please display it prominently at your home. Tell people about it. And please give it back to us next year. Maybe we'll put your name on it again. I don't know. But we'll start again from today's program, and we keep track. And we also ask you to be honest about what you've attended. And then um, we'll make an award next year. So thank you very much. And Mazel Tov. Can you hold it? It's very heavy. You have to hold it over your head, and then Oprah has to lie on the floor and go like that, like in, I don't know, okay. I, that's right. I wanted to thank, um, you know, Ada Gilbert and Rosella Bernstein for all their efforts with the Kiddush Cup, and I also um, 
once again, if Bobby's here, Bobby, we thank you for hosting us. So thank you very much. Okay, our speaker for today is Rabbi Chaim Seidler. Feller. Does anybody go to UCLA here, undergrad or graduate school? Raise your hand. Okay, so Martin, I know, Martin, I know you were a student, right, when he was there. <laughs> Beth Elster was there, right? Was anybody there besides Beth when Rabbi Seidler Feller was the rabbi in the UCLA? Just Beth. Okay, Beth is your only student here. Well, you know. And her brother, okay. Um, Rabbi Chaim Sadler Feller is in his 33rd, is that now 34th? Uh, starting, his 34th. starting his 34th year at UCLA as the Hill Director. He previously served as Hill Director at Ohio State. Ooh, they lost yesterday. <laughs> and as, I'm it's glad you left, but maybe you should, maybe you should become the Hill Director at USC. No. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we'll have a better football team. And as rabbi of Congregation Avat Achim in New Bedford, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, he was ordained in 1971 at Yeshiva University, where he also earned a master's degree in rabbinic literature. He's taught Kabbalah and Talmud at the University of Judaism. He's a fellow of the Shalom Hartman Institute for Advanced Jewish Studies in Jerusalem, and is a member of the Academic Advisory Board of the Wilstein Institute of Social Policy. He's also a member of the faculty of the Wexner Heritage Foundation, and is a Lehman Faculty Fellow at the Brandeis Bardeen Institute. He was, he says. Do you still love the constant challenges presented by students who consistently and persistently ask the most interesting questions? Yeah, he still likes that. He's a known book collector and is married to Dr. Doreen Seidler Feller, a clinical psychologist. And he's the father of Shuli, who studies photography at NYU, and Shaul, planning to go to yeshiva. Is Shaul at yeshiva right now? He's a second-year student in Yeshiva. So this is a little dated, apparently. Rabbi Seidler Fellow also served. Okay, so Rabbi um, Chaim Seidler Fellow also served as our scholar in residence at our May retreat in 2009, which uh, looks like we'll be moving to the Brandeis Bardeen Institute this year, and you will all be invited. And I have just confirmed that Rabbi Seidler Fellow will bring his wife to speak also. And wh what is her expertise? In uh, human sexuality. Human sexuality. So for some of the adults in the audience, if you're over a certain age, you'll be invited to a human sexuality lecture at the, adult re at the family retreat. I don't know this group. I don't know. They're very young. <laughs> anyway, thank you all for coming to our seventh annual program, and I'm going to hand the microphone over, and uh, we'll enjoy your presentation. Thank you. First of all, I'd like to thank all of you. I, I, I think that this, this, uh, this program is the envy of uh, all communities because I don't know other communities that invest so much personally in learning. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for it. I think I want to applaud you. you know? It's really great that you do this. And Ari, Ari is the champ at organizing this, so it's, uh, it's a pleasure. I, I, and I've been waiting for him to invite me for a while, so we finally <laughs> did, you know. <laughs> but uh, the other thing I wanted to tell you was that um, Rachel Elior was my teacher, the uh, person who's going to be your scholar in residence, uh, was my teacher in 1980 when she was just a young professor at the Hebrew University, and she was dynamic then, and I've, I've met her since subsequently uh, at Limud and other places, and she's a won wonderful teacher, a wonderful teacher. And uh, if anybody can open up the, uh, the mystical tradition to you, she can do it. And it's important to know 
the substance and the significance and the impact and importance of Jewish mysticism because uh, it, it, it's there. In fact, it'll play a role in our, teach, in our learning today even if I don't mention it because you can't talk about religion if you don't talk about mysticism. And for some reason, you know, it's one of those things like sex. You're not supposed to know it, right? You, or you're not supposed to talk about it. And then you realize it must be a mistake because if you don't talk about it, then something's missing in life. And the same thing is true about, uh, about mysticism. And in particular, I guess I'm supposed to talk about God. You know, I, 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 I sometimes refer to God as the, you know, the G word um, because our rabbis never talked to us about God. Uh, certainly not our generation. I'm including myself. In, right? and now the rabbis are, get, are, are beginning to talk about the relationship to God. Uh, Wolpe is an example. Uh, Naomi Levy is another person, um, etc. I mean, you have, and now you have books. Uh, Elliot Dorff wrote a book about God. Um, but the fact is that our rabbis went to rabbinical seminary at a time that their own teachers never spoke to them about their inner life and never talked about the conflicts that they experienced. So in many ways, the rabbis were impaired spiritually. They didn't have the language. And nobody told them and nobody talked to them about how to discuss this or that it was okay to reveal your, your inner conflicts. I'll tell you a story. I'll start off with a little story. And I know we have to get... I want, I want to cover some text with you, so I'll... I'll try to control my impulses. Um, the, there, there was a um, well-known Jewish professor who later became known as Baba Ramdas. Anyone remember Ramdas? Any of you remember that name? His name was Richard Alpert. He was a professor at Harvard, taught psychology, and he was the only professor uh, who was ever expelled from Harvard. Uh, he was, uh, I think they say, he was dropping acid with Timothy Leary. They were working on experimentation with, with uh, LSD. Uh, now, um, Alpert, when he was expelled, went east. I mean, he, 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 he went on a journey. Um, and he finally wound up with a teacher, with a guru in India. Um, he came back to the United States and wrote a book called Be Here Now, which sold three million copies at least, maybe more, maybe another million by now. And uh, it opened up the world of Eastern mysticism um, to the West. So, and this is a point that you have to know, that a, a, a group of uh, sort of Jewish boys, and even girls, uh, Sylvia Borstein is a Jewish woman, are really responsible for teaching wet the West about the ways of the East. That has something to say to us about this Jewish quest for spirituality, since the Jews are the teachers, the transmitters the, of this tradition, not of the Jewish tradition, unfortunately. So uh, Alpert, or Ramdas, as he became known, uh, was invited to the University of Judaism years ago, um, I think it was about 10 or 15 years ago, to give a memorial lecture on Judaism and spirituality. And they gave him a bunch of books to read. He read Heschel, he read Buber, he read Soloveitchik, and he digested it and synthesized it and presented a marvelous uh, lecture, which was a translation of Jewish mystical ideas into a, uh, or Jewish religious ideas, into a spiritual framework that was universal. Uh, unfortunately, by the way, those of us who carry with us the illusion that if only we exposed everybody to the teachings, to the truths of Judaism, then we'll win over 
the world, or certainly our own. Well, he, he, he didn't come back, if that's what people want to know. He, rem- he's re- he was very happy where he was. He's written a book on happiness, in fact, um, where he still is. Um, but in the course of the, of the lecture, he told the following story, which was very telling. He said that while he was in India, uh, immersed in his uh, learning, he had to come back to the States because his mother passed away. Now, by the way, his father was the president of their shul, the vice president of the local UJA campaign in Boston, so it was an involved Jewish family. Um, and as he approached the cemetery, the rabbi saw him coming. You know, he was dressed in a long robe, and his hair was a little unkempt, you know, long and unkempt as it was the custom in those days. Uh, and the rabbi looked at him and said, so where have you been? So he told him his story about his, mystical, about his spiritual quest, about his teacher, where he, how he found some peace, inner peace, and what he was learning. And the rabbi said, let me share a story with you, because something happened to me. And he said uh, to Ramdas, you know, I was studying for my uh, rabbinic ordination at the Jewish Theological Seminary. We were studying the book of Exodus, and we were up all night. And I had a religious experience in the middle of the night. I imagined that I was leaving Egypt with Israelites, crossing the sea, and I came to Mount Sinai where the Torah was revealed. So Ramdas turns to the rabbi and says, my God, you, mu- that, you must have used this story time after time to inspire your congregants. And the rabbi says sheepishly, you're the first person I'm sharing this with. Can you imagine if the rabbi would have come to the congregation and said, you know what? I crossed the sea with Israelites. There would have been an emergency board meeting. That night, the rabbi's a meshuganah. He had a religious experience. So we don't have the, we're not willing to expose ourselves and to talk about that dimension of our lives that has to do with something that sounds strange. God, personal relationship with God. When I tell this story, I add the following. On Friday night, we, all of us, chant the, great, the greatest, most probably Jewish religious poem, mystical poem, which is what in our L'chadodi, right? You know that it's written by a mystic. You should study. I mean, you can un- the one, it's a wondrous poem because even if you don't know anything about mysticism, you love it. That's good writing because people can read it on so many different levels and not, not necessarily know the original intent because it, it, it speaks in so, a, at so many levels. So there's a paragraph there, Lote Voshi, Veloti Kalmi, don't be embarrassed, don't be disheartened. It's addressed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is bereft of its inhabitants. Um, so I offer this gloss based on the Ramdas story, that on Shabbos we have permission not to be embarrassed about our spiritual inclinations. So you can close your eyes, you can clap your hands, and you can allow yourself, you can let go a little bit. You don't have to always be in control. You can go to some shuls where they dance for L'chadudi, and everybody sits there, I'm not going to dance. You know. <laughs> That's not me, you know. And, 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 um, or you can just sit with your eyes closed. How many of us allow ourselves to do that? They didn't tell us that was Jewish, you know? Sitting, sitting with, and first of all, to silence, oh God forbid that we should be silent, you know? Uh, but maybe that's also part of sensing the oneness of being. Think about that. So when we talk about God, we have to overcome some obstacles, which is our, some, some, inhibi- some inhibitions that we have. Now. In addition to the inhibitions that we have, we are currently involved in a basic culture war, the, uh, what I call a war with a gang of five, gang of four, actually. I, I get my numbers wrong. No, the fifth one is David Wolpe. He's on the other side. 
Um, the gang of four are Richard Dawkins, wrote The God Delusion, Daniel Dennett, something about the religious gene, um, uh, uh, Sam Harris, Crisis of Faith. He was actually a graduate student at, at UCLA when I called him to meet with him, so I got a call back from his agent. That tells you something's, something's going on here. You know, he could... <laughs> no, it is Hollywood, after all. I didn't, you know, it never happened to me before. And then, and then what I consider to be the most important book of, of all, Christopher Hitchens, um, right? Uh, God is not great. So I have a talk that I give, by the way, in response to Hitchens. I call it, God may not be great, but neither are you. <laughs> and, I, and by the way, that's one of my points, because there's an absence of humility completely. His, and, but the book is excellent. In fact, I think that everybody should read it. In fact, I think it should be required reading for all seminary students. They should know, whether Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Muslim especially Muslim, they should know what the downside of religion is in practice what religion has brought about by those who purvey religion and pervert religion. But, but it's religion. I mean, you can't, that's what I, that's what I don't accept, you know, when a, when a Muslim leader says, well, they're not good Muslims. All right, they're not good Muslims, but some other bad Muslim taught him that that was what to do. So I don't care if they're not good Muslims. They did it in the name of Islam. Same is true about, you know, Jews who, who do things that are, that are evil in the name of Judaism. Mayor Kahana was an example of that, someone who, you know, had ideology that was just uh, in some ways perverted. And, uh, and he did it in the name of Judaism. We have to own it. We have to own it and deal with it as Jews. Uh, so anyway, the, 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 the gang of four, the gang of four yeah, and Hitchens especially, are reacting to something. They're reacting to the rise of fundamentalism. So that we have to take that into account. It's true that they're a bit aggressive in the denunciation of religion. On the other hand, there's something in the air. There's a lot of God in the air. There's a lot of religion in the air. For everybody, by the way, um, except for Jews. We don't have a lot of God. I'm not necessarily a statistically oriented person. I, I taught in the sociology department at UCLA for a number of years, even though I, I never took a course in sociology. It was a testament to the department that they're willing to talk. You know, I, I, I said I'll talk about ideas. They said, okay. So, but, it, but, but you need to know something about statistics. They do tell you something. So uh, a, a survey done a number of years ago called the American uh, identity, Religious Identity Survey indicated that uh, among those Americans who say they're secular or somewhat secular, so 16% of Americans, of Americans indicated that they were secular or somewhat secular, whereas 44% of Jews said they were secular or somewhat secular, almost three times as many. You know, by the way, one of the, thing, one of the things you have to do is, it depends on the question, but there's some consistency here. So, you know, whatever the numbers are, there's a consistent sense of the Jews being alienated from identification with religious particularly religious ideas like God. Um, uh, another, the, the, the most recent survey is the Pew survey. So for those who are absolutely certain about God, apparently 41% of Jews said they were. Whereas among Christians, so for evangelical Christians, it was 90%. For mainstream Christians, it was 70%. For Muslims, it was 82%. Now we are closest, interestingly enough, as, as a religious community in terms of our belief patterns to Buddhists. The only difference between us and the Buddhists is that, uh, another interesting statistic, meditating weekly, Buddhists meditate weekly, 61%, Jews, 23%. So you see, even on spirituality scales, 
we're not only not identified religiously in the normative way, which is you know, God, belief, what's called belief, which is a hard one for Jews, but even in terms of what you would call non-theistic uh, non uh, devotion or uh, acts like meditation. We're not there either. And I, can, I, I, I know that it's true because there's a higher education research institute at UCLA, and I actually have a meeting with a committee tomorrow. It's a national survey that's been undertaken for a number of years on spirituality in higher education. Uh, and the UCLA group is working, so I hope to be able to become part of the group at UCLA. In the latest pub published um, data, that they, it was about a year ago, where they had some statistics, the Jews didn't even figure into the scale. In other words, you had percentages of Christians, uh, Muslims, uh, so on, Buddhists, and the Jews weren't even there. And you know that Jews are pretty prominent at UCLA. Where were they? Where are the young Jews? Now, you can take this statistic in two ways. You can say, on the one hand, Jews have indicated that they're not really interested in sort of what we would call narrowly religious expression, and therefore, if you want to attract and address Jews, do it culturally, politically, as we have done traditionally. Or you can say there's a crisis. The crisis is that we're worried about Judaism, and yet we think we can sustain Judaism without, some, without God. I always ask people, well, we're not really religious. I said, so what do you do on Pesach when you sit down at the Seder? All right, you know, I mean, maybe some people don't mention God because it's possible to have a creative Seder without God. But most of us have some sense there was, there was an exodus from Egypt and God was a little bit involved. How do you read the Bible without God? You, know, you can secular, but, but I don't know how to do Judaism without God. That doesn't mean you have, like, I had a, dis excuse me for a moment for interrupting myself, but I, I want to be coherent. But I had a discussion with a person who does the cultural programming at, at Hillel last week. So we sat down, we were talking, and I raised these questions with her. And she said to me, oh yeah, but they, they're so intolerant and they have no relationship to the world, they meaning the ultra-Orthodox. So in other words, her excuse or her explanation as to why she and doesn't have a relationship with God or with Jewish learning is that that stuff is owned by those people. And those people who are devoted and do talk about God in their own way, they're intolerable, right? And they're intolerant as well. So we, I, I wouldn't want to be connected to that. But then my question is, why see Judaism to the ultra-Orthodox or even to the Orthodox? We're, we're Jews. It's our tradition. What you've done here, it's terrific because you're owning learning. And you made a statement, learning isn't only the domain of the yeshiva. That's absolutely true. Something that we, so we have to start a conversation. Maybe you've done it already. I mean, I, I don't want to be chutzpah and say you haven't done this. We have to talk about God and what, what meaning we can make about God as we, enter, as we, as we move forward. Uh, and I'm not saying, by the way, that my approach is necessarily the one that you're going to be able to embrace. Because uh, it's particular to my, to my experience. But I want to sort of show you a little bit about how we've thought about God in the Jewish tradition. I want to share a paradigm for the development of the God idea. And I want to raise some problems about the nature of God and, and, and suggest a, a solution. And then we'll be able, then we'll be at 10 o'clock tonight and we'll, we'll have solved the problem. But I maybe we'll start. You know, you're going to spend a weekend with me. Uh, I'm supposed to talk there about other things, but uh, I'm always available uh, to, uh, and very anxious. Uh, yeah, so that you know this, it's part of my own search. And I grew up in a, an Orthodox home. I, I daven three times a day. I, uh, uh, no one talked to me about God until in my, in my adult years when I was already a Hillel director, um, I, I, I participated in a seminar with Art Green where we studied 
the writings of the Baal Shem Tov. I came from a Hasidic family, but you know, no one talked about Hasidism either because in, in the yeshiva they were Lithuanians. Uh, they were rationalists, inte intellectuals. Rabbi Soloveitchik was my teacher. And even though he was a very spiritual man, his spirituality only emerged in public lectures. That's why I was going to tell you. The rab there were only a few rabbis who shared their inner lives. Mordechai Kaplan. And by the way, Mordechai Kaplan really dealt with God. It's, uh, people are wrong. They think Mordechai Kaplan, oh, he did away with God. It, what he did away with, a personal God or whatever, and we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit. But he was, his books are filled with God talk. Because that was the problem that he was dealing with. So students gravitated to him. Shulweis, they, all, they found a teacher he who dealt with the issues. Uh, Heschel talked about God. Again, someone who had students. You know, students. And Soloveitchik, as I said in his public lectures, opened up somewhat. So you were able to see a little bit of the, of the inner life. But who were the teachers of that generation? You know, you know what they called Heschel at the seminary? They called him the poet. And that wasn't a compliment. You know, because he didn't have enough fo footnotes in his articles, you know. So, uh, you know, being a poet is not respected in, in, in an area of scientific research. Now, it's good. You, have, you need both. But you can't do away with poetry. And I always say, ask my students if their parents read poetry to them any longer. Do we? I, I, do, I, I don't know. I mean, my, my parents didn't read poetry to me, you know, and I didn't appreciate And the truth of the matter is, I didn't appreciate literature, and, it, and, it, and believe it or not, it took me till I was an, uh, an older person to realize that the psalms that I was reciting every day in my prayers were poetry. I mean, that's how, in a, in a way, how blocked I was. I was blocked. I say these prayers every day, and I didn't realize they were poetry. If, you, if I would have realized they were poetry, then it's Siv, Tzur of Berlin, who, has a, who wrote a commentary on the Torah and was the head of the yeshiva in Valozhin, in Lithuania, and whose son was Meir Barilan, who, for whom the, the Barilan University is named, right? So then it's Siv writes in the introduction to his commentary on the Torah in the at late 19th century, he says, Kol HaTorah Kulashira. The entire Torah is poetry. Wow! And that means they're metaphors. It's not literal. It means the tradition says, look deeper beyond, beneath the surface. You can't read it literally. It's against the, the very un understanding of what the Torah is all about. Wow, that opens up, that it opens up, up to me. We have to do that to our, for ourselves and for, and for our young people to be able to engage them. It makes it exciting because then the possibility of new interpretation, right? You can come with your reading. That's how you make something come, come alive, not by telling them, this is what it means. Well, that's not, that's not how, we didn't learn that way, by the way. We didn't learn that way. Today, all of a sudden, I see, I, didn't, I don't know where that comes from. It's not, it's not the tradition that I come from. All right, I think that that's, that's, my, that's my introduction. I was going to tell you one other story. I, 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 I don't want to lose it, which was we were in, we were in India last year. My, I had a sabbatical, so we were in India for, uh, for a month. Um, better part of a month, actually. So we in Benares, Varanasi. So we're, we're going down the river um, near the funeral pyre and up on the wall uh, above, above where the funeral pyre is was a big sign in Hebrew on the wall. And it basically said that um, something like uh, the best uh, restaurant in town was around the corner. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and, then, and as you walk through the old city, there were signs in Hebrew on the wall, written on the wall. They were written on the wall about where to buy mattresses and so on. And I realized the Israelis who come to Benares aren't coming on a visit. They're coming to stay for a year, right? They're renting a mattress, then, you know, they're eating. It's not just about, you know, I'm here for a few weeks. And that, again, that, all that does is support my contention that Jews are looking to connect spiritually. And Zalman Shachter once told me years ago, he said, we're a very spiritual people. 
The only thing is we can't find it in Judaism. So that's our responsibility to open up the doors for that in our personal lives and in our synagogues. You know, you have to ask yourself, do you go to your synagogue to meet God or to meet Shirley? <laughs> you know, that's a, not, that's a good reason to go. I, I know who Shirley is, but uh, all right. Yes, say something. Absolutely. In fact, I, some of my, I, I, was in, I was in Bombay, in Mumbai. I met the B'nai Israel, and I was in Cochin. We're now friendly with the head of the community in Cochin. Jews were in Cochin for 2,500 years, um, they say. I mean, at least, a, at, least a th at least a thousand years. Anyway, okay. So what I want to do is, with you is I'd like to start from the very beginning. Let's look at our sheets and look at the bottom of the sheet. There are plenty, yes. Of the 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 the, the, uh, the sheet with Maimonides, searching for God in Judaism. That sheet. Okay, all right. So I, what I want to do is I want to spend a few minutes on the classical notion of God and how God is represented. So those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you know the following: that the Bible begins with a verse. What's the first verse in the Bible? Bereshit, bara, Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created. So do you know that in the second chapter, in the second story of creation, the first verse, well, actually, it's, it's verse 4, because it's uh, whatever the reason for that is. Uh, you, you know the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day of creation, but it's the first passage in the second chapter because the chapter headings were made by, who made the chapters? Christians. Christians in the Middle Ages made the chapters, and, and, uh, and, the cha and therefore the Sabbath was sort of demoted from the, from the essence of the story of creation because it was a seventh day, and Christianity was making an argument for its Sabbath. So it pushed the Sabbath off into the second chapter. It's, in, it's an interesting piece of polemi polemics in the, in the organization. So in the, in the second half of the fourth verse, of chapter 2, we read, in the first chapter, we read, Bereshit bara Elohim, Elohim created. And in the second chapter, we read, Beyom asot Adonai Elohim, Eretz Shamayim. You don't have that down uh, here. On the day that the Adonai Elohim. So all of a sudden, in the second chapter, can I move around? Is that okay? I guess I have to take the mic with me. Okay. All right. So, you know, the, the, um, what you have and it's a classic question, is that in the first chapter, God is referred to as Elohim. How come in the second chapter you have a new name for God? How do you understand that? So this became, of course, grist for the mill of biblical scholarship later on. But what's interesting, what, what, what do I mean by biblical scholarship? What am I alluding to? I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, biblical, I mean biblical criticism. Yeah, and, and in what way? What would, if, you, if, you saw, if you were reading a document, and in, in the document someone is called by one name in one document, and in another document by another name, what would you conclude? Different authors. So, this, so, this, so there's a question here. So that, that's, that's not what we're going to discuss. You discussed that with Shalom Paul some years ago, maybe, no? I assume. No, I mean, oh, you must have had. You should. Think about it. The point, of course, is that, the, that what's interesting about the questions of biblical scholarship, that not all of them, but many of these questions, 
were raised in another framework already in the Talmudic period? Now, the answer is going to be theological, not historical. That is it, right? The, the, the rabbis of the Talmud are not interested in a type of historical answer. They're not thinking in that way. But they give us a theological framework uh, where, they, uh, where, they are will, where they acknowledge with their, their awareness that there is a difference here. They're two different stories. One story, just read them. Go home and read them tonight. One story is from the top down, from God's perspective, and God, it's like, a, it's like Zeus thinking the world into being, right? God says, and it is. And you all read it like it's, you know, magic. It's not magic. It's intended. Speech creates. That's the first story. And the second story is God, like an artist. God is molding things. It's from the ground up. It's a very different story. Right? And, and, and the, 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 what are, the emotions are different. The connections are different. In fact, in the first chapter, God is not connected. It's an idea. The second chapter, God makes things. You know, so one starts from the perspective of the divine, the other starts from the perspective of the human. You know, we'd say one is theocentric, the other is anthropocentric. Right? So you're going to get different notions. So you have Elohim and what we call yud heh I'm sorry, I don't have a blackboard, but you understand that, right? The, the God that we, whose name we pronounce is Adonai. It's spelled yud heh That's another story, which I can't explain to you now, but you, m many of you may know why that is, or you should know why because you face it all the time. So look at Rashi. Let's look at Rashi and what Rashi does. I guess I'll, I'll read it because that's most convenient. Bara Elohim, God's creating. It does not say bara Adonai. That's what Hashem is, all right? That's what he means. It doesn't say Adonai, but Elohim. Because at first it rose in thought, God considered, so to speak, to create it with the attribute of judgment, of strict judgment. But God saw that the world could not last if he did that, so God gave precedence to the attribute of mercy and joined it to the attribute of judgment. This is the meaning of that which is written in chapter 2, which I just read you, Biyom asot Adonai Elohim, on the day of Adonai Elohim's making of earth and heaven, with the name Adonai preceding the, and joined to the name Elohim. Okay? So what's Rashi saying? Anyone? Anyone saying? This is the rabbinic theological answer. All right, you're all in yeshiva now. Yes? Is it a response to the Christian charge that the Jewish God was just a God of justice and they have the... Good. Very good, very good. It, 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 it is that as well. Absolutely, it's that as well. But, 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 you know, you have, just going back to basics, what it's saying is the two names of God refer to two different attributes of God. And in the chapter that's from God's perspective, from the perspective of the, the judge, right? Then God, God is a God of justice. And the world is made according to plan, very much according to plan. And it has to operate according to plan. You know this, well, the other, the other the God, Adonai, however, is what I would call the God of relationship, Right? The God who's the God of mercy, the interactive God, not the judge, the one who cares. Or the major Jewish contribution to theology is not just is not one God. They knew in the ancient world that already the Greeks knew that there was only one God. It's that God cares about people and that God is a God who interacts in history. That's the innovation. That God's involved in the world. We may have questions with that. We're going to come to that. But that's the assertion here. 
because Elohim, the, the judge, the judge is removed. You can't approach the judge. It's illegal. You know, I'm always, I always wonder, by the way, talk about, about mercy and compassion. I'm on campus a lot. You know that I do that. I, I do that. And, and what you hear all the time from the Muslim students is they want justice. Now, we know what justice means. See, justice is cold. Justice means you did wrong, you pay. So from their perspective, Israel did wrong, it has to pay us. What Israel wants is mercy. Mercy means compromise. They don't, in other words, they're talking past each other. They're two different languages. And the Jewish contention, the Talmudic contention is that, as Rashi says, the world can't survive on justice alone. Because justice means you if, you, if you did wrong, you've got to pay for it. We would never survive. We, there has to be a way of atonement. Right, well, teshuva, repentance. I mean, we're, in other words, you have to be able to, uh, to look at yourself and reconstruct yourself in some way. It can't be determined so, so, you know, so, so simply. This is Jonah's problem. Jonah's off, God sends him, wants to send him to Nineveh, he doesn't go. He says like this to himself, look, I represent God. God said, and another, it wants him to say another 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. So he says, what am I going to do? I'm going to go tell them in 40 days Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And then maybe, you know, they're going to listen and they're going to repent. And then God won't destroy. So first of all, I'll look like a fool. But second of all, the God's going to look like a fool because God said in 40 days Nineveh is going to be destroyed and it's not going to happen. That's not a God. We need a God who says Nineveh is going to be destroyed. He's going to destroy Nineveh. Not any of this stuff that God's going to change. What do you mean God changes his mind? That's not God. So this is, the, this is a, a, an enormous theological jump. Nobody thought of it this way. In the ancient world, when God declared it happened, whether it was Pharaoh or it was the gods who controlled nature, whatever, it happened. All of a sudden, you have this idea that God is compassionate? Where does compassion figure into this? God's a ruler. Tell me, how many rulers do you know rule with compassion? That's a very strange word. Consideration? Rulers need authority. Rulers need authority. They need control. They're not going to show their humanity. That weakens their capacity to exert control. You had a question. Yes. It's possible. I, I, it but, but remember, I'm talking in rabbinic language. Think about In other words, they wouldn't say that. They're still trying to, they, they don't think that way. To them, it's not impossible. It's the same God with different dimensions. We have another perspective. You're right. And, 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 and I'm not going to be able to get to it, but historically, you're correct. Because Elohim, what's the root of Elohim? Anyone know what Elo, the root of Elohim? Yes. El. El. Now, who is El? Who is El? Co the collective abstract, yes, yes. But, but El, El was, we know who he was. El was the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon. And the Torah includes a reference. I mean, that's so interesting to me. We have a Torah that's willing to open us up to the possibility that the God idea developed. So if the God idea was develop, developed, it's still developing. It develops with, with human understanding. Each age has another take on the nature of its relationship to God. You know, and, and the, the idea became more and more abstract, but the ale of the, ale of, the of antiquity, you have in, in Genesis, El Shaddai, right? You have a number, El Elyon, Malkit Tzedek. 
You ever, wor you ever wonder about this? Abraham meets this guy named Malkitzedek, Bahu Kohen Le'elelyon. And he said, Baruch Konei Shamayim Ba'aretz. This Malkitzedek was a, 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 a priest for the high God. Interesting, very interesting. Every day in the Amidah, three times a day, we repeat the phrase that Malkitzedek used in greeting Abraham. Why, am, why are we doing this? Pagan, Pagan said these words? No, he was a monotheist before Abraham. Interesting in the Torah, right? That, and that the God idea develops. He had, a, he, he had an Ale idea. Ale was the chief God, like that Egyptian, supposedly, Ichnaton, right? Who may have had a one God idea. It's possible. It's po certainly possible. But the Torah imagines a number of monotheists. But Ale is, a God of na is, a nat is, the, is the chief God of nature. And Elohim represents, I would say, the composite of all natural forces in the abstraction with a hey, which gives it a sort of spiritual focus, right? Elohim, right? Whereas yud hey vav hey, what's yud hey vav hey, my friends? yud hey vav hey is a contraction of, we think, we think, haya, hove, yihyeh, was, is, will be. And if you say it first, hayah, yeah. So you get yud hey vav hey. You know, maybe, maybe. It certainly is related to the verb of being. That, and it means presence. I am. I'm here. That's why I talk about I'm here for you. I'm not there. Remove, distant, as the verse in Isaiah, the verse in Isaiah summarizes it. Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzavaot, Melochola Aretz Kevodo. Holy, holy, holy. Removed, removed, transcendent, transcendent, transcendent is the Lord of hosts, the glory of God is present, imminent. God is both transcendent, judge, distant, and imminent, present, caring. In fact, Jonathan Sachs, who's, you got to get him here, and if you do, I'll, I'll help, I want to help. Jonathan Sachs, I think, is the most important, one of the, one of the most important thinkers that we have today, chief rabbi in England, and you should just subscribe to Covenant, Covenant and Conversation, which is his weekly Torah, uh, sheet and it's 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 brilliant and and it's and and it just opens things up so he in one of his teachings he said the following there's a midrash that says Moses was rewarded because when God saw him at the when he saw God at the burning bush or when he confronted God God confronted him at the burning bush it says that he hid his face and didn't look at God so the reward for doing that was when Miriam and Aaron was speaking against Moses so God says you do you know who Moses is pal pal I speak to him Mouth to mouth, and he looks at an image of God. So Sachs says, either it's good or bad. In other words, he's, he didn't look at God because you're not supposed to look at God. And the reward is that he can look at God. How could that be? Right? So he said, Moses, the first verse says, Moses didn't want to see God's justice. Because God's justice means what I did is done. And there's nothing that can be done about it. And Moses said, there's too much suffering in the world to accept it as simply God's, God's will. In other words, you get an answer sometimes from people who are devotees, religious devotees. And it's God's will. It happened because God... Moses said, that's not, that's not the God of Israel. That's, the, that's not the God of Israel. That's the God of determinism. I don't want to see that God. And the reward for Moses for his patience and for his insistence that humans have respond, that he wants a framework for human activity, for, for social responsibility, was that God says, You have a chance to look at the compassion of God because that means hope, possibility, transformation, change. 
That's the message here. The world isn't as it is and that has to be. The world can be yet, and we're not there, and we're not there. And it's our responsibility. We can make a difference in making some change and addressing the suffering somewhat of other people. We can't allow ourselves to imagine that we're hopeless and helpless. Yes? It's the same idea of having a Maharaj in, in a dream. Yes. It's like to ask the Maharaj, what does God do 24 hours a day? Meshadech Shiduchem. No, the uh, first quarter yes. he, does, uh, he judges the world. Ah. And by the time he's ready to really destroy it, comes the second quarter, which is Midat Rachamim. And the two of them really merge. Because what does he do after that? He teaches Tinokot to Bnei Rabban Torah. Uh -huh. Okay, good. Excellent. So there's this, right. And in fact, that's the operative framework for, under, for, the operative framework for understanding the prayers on, on Yom Kippur, that God moves from the chair of justice to the chair of mercy. And it's up to us to move God, so to speak. You understand what it means? Anyone, tell me what, I, what it means. What does it mean to move God from the chair of justice to the chair of mercy? Then, you'll, then, then I can stop speaking, yes? <laughs> no, he won't let me, but <laughs> not yet, not yet. He's timing me. But it, it suggests, it, it, to make the argument, to make the case for uh, the doing justice, justice, but doing it with the other hand. Who, 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 for whom? All right, but you see, but I want to move that. I want to tell you something. I want you to make a translation in your mind. Did you look at yourself lately? You know, who are you? Who are you? All of you, who are you? This is the great, also, the Torah is the first document or to, to make this assertion that human beings are image of God. So I want you to make a translation. When it says that we're moving God from the chair of justice to the chair of mercy, it's about ourselves. It's about get, kick, giving us a patch and saying, get off and start doing something. And start reading theology in, an, in, an, in, in a human-centered way and realize that you are responsible for manifesting that godliness in the world. I'm, I, I know I'm jumping ahead, but I, I, no, no, don't, don't do that. Oh, I won't do no, that. Of course, I can't get water on, I, I, my pen is, uh, all right, water-based. Okay, thanks. Okay, let me put the book. All right, so uh, uh, let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me go on. So let, let, me, let me share something with you about the development of the God idea, just as an aside, and then we'll come to, the, we'll come to a, I'll raise a question and, and then and, and a conclusion. I like to use um, a paradigm that was suggested uh, by Gershom Sholem, who was the great historian of Jewish mysticism. If you haven't read it yet, and if you're interested in Jewish mysticism as a pr preparation for Rachel Elior, it's still worthwhile to read his book, Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism sort of like a Bible. I, I, it's, it, it's dense, but it's also uh, vitally, e vitally important, even though a lot of scholars have, qu have raised questions about certain specifics. But it's a wonderfully, it's, it's, it's panoramic. It's panoramic. You don't have anyone like that who has such a mind as Gershom Sholem. So, um, uh, so this is a suggestion, that in our early period of infancy, in our childhood period, when we were, our, the biblical period, the God that manifested God's self was a big father who was around all the time, performing miracles, present in the world itself. This is a more mythic notion of God, right? In nature 
And we learned to expect that that God would do things for us. Right? We're in, in the desert, there was manna, protect us from our enemies. Right? And there were some certain specialists who knew how to get to God. The priests were specialists in the temple, the prophets were the ones who were able to speak to God. And God's miraculous self was always available to do things for us. Now, isn't it wondrous, the question we always ask ourselves, why did stop, God stop doing miracles? doesn't like us. You know, he loves us. He loves us not. So, Elliot, uh, Richard Friedman wrote a book called The Disappearance of God. All right, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, what's your name? Howard. Howard. Yeah, Howard. Maybe you want to... <laughs> no, you know. You know. <laughs> Howard, you know. No, it's good. It's good. No, thank you. Thank you. You know, I stand up in front of a class sometimes with uh, 150 students, and I say, there's this wonderful book about, and, I, and then the name, I use the name. You know, oh, you know about this already. All right. that, 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 ma that machala. All right, so Friedman says that the apex, the high point of the Bible, the greatest achievement of the Bible in terms of where the Bible is headed is the book of Esther, because God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. That's such an interesting idea. All right, in other words, that the point of the Bible is to wean the children from their dependency on the parent to be there all the time, to become adults, or at least, at least teenagers, you know, to get out on their own. And, and, and that's exactly what happens when they enter the land. But I mean, it's fascinating. And Esther, by the way, is the only book that's not found, that wasn't found in Qumran, in the Dead Sea, in the Dead sea books. It's possible. There are two explanations for it. One explanation is that it's the last book to get into the Bible, and it really reflects the culmination of biblical thought. And uh, the other explanation is that the day that, that the walls fell in in Qumran, someone had taken it out of the library, so it wasn't around. <laughs> so, so, so it wasn't around. All right. Anyway, so that's the first period. First period, as I said, it's the biblical period. It's the period of dependency. It's a period of childhood. We hear God's voice or God's sound in the garden. Kol Adonai mitalech bagan. Then comes the rabbinic period. Where do you hear God's voice in the rabbinic period? Where do you hear God's voice? Not in the garden, not in the Beit HaMikdash. The Beit HaMikdash is destroyed, but in the Beit HaMidrash. You hear God's voice in the voices of the scholars arguing. But no back, right. So the story is, so what epitomizes this? The story of Loba Shamaimi that you all know. Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yoshua having an argument and Rabbi Ezer claims, I'm right, so he calls forth all these miracles. Let the, let the tree be uprooted, the tree is uprooted. The rabbis say, we don't make law based on uprooted trees. Let the water main go backwards, the water main goes backwards. Miracles have nothing to do with law. Let the walls of the study hall fall in, the walls start to fall in. Joshua says, do you want to bury us here? So the walls remain suspended, you know, not, not having fallen in. But Joshua also has some powers. Power is not the question, by the way. They're powers. Then... Eliezer pulls out all the stops and says, let God declare who's right. And the voice comes from heaven and it says, the law is according to Rabbi Eliezer, to which Rabbi Joshua responds, but in the Torah you said, lo bashamayim he, it is not in heaven. Acharei rabim lahatot. And, and actually pervert, uh, re reconstructing the verse, saying we follow the majority. Right, but the, the rabbis were nervous because they were defying God. So one of the rabbis, Rabbi Nachman, had the ability to tune into Elijah because Elijah never died. So you can get on the Elijah frequency. 
We should try. Giluyei Eliyahu. Mystics did this throughout history. And the rabbis sent Rabbi Nachman, and they said, what, to, to ask Elijah, what was God doing all the time when we were defying him? And Elijah reports, God was smiling. Nitzchuni banai, nitzchuni banai. My children have been victorious over me. My children have been victorious over me. It's a proud parent who says, I can be, I, I can rest with a knowledge that they take it seriously. So seriously, they're willing to argue with me, and even if they're wrong, they're going to learn. And I will then, you know, I'm going to withdraw. In other words, the rabbis were telling God, your place is not in the study hall. Your place is not here. No more miracles. That's not the world, that's not the world we live in any longer. We take responsibility. You gave us the law, we're going to run with it. Because we can live with it. We can struggle with it. And we have reason. It's no longer revelation that is dominant, but reason that dominates. It's a transformation. Yes? Next, next point. So there, here you have the thesis, right, childhood. And then you have the antithesis. Exactly. The high point of rationalism was achieved by the great. Who? Maimonides. Haneshar Hagadol, the great eagle. Right? It's not an accident. And I, I'm not doing this, be, I, I didn't plan this because I didn't know Eliora was coming, but it's not an accident that the great, greatest classic of Jewish mysticism was created in the century after Maimonides. And this was the people's response. It's true. God can't be, we can't expect God to be around, and we can't manipulate God. And we don't know God's essence, because it's unknowable to human beings. But we need an experience of God. We need to sense some intimacy. And you, Rambam, you've achieved, I mean, that's the accusation, right? You've moved God out of our lives, completely, opening the door to secularism. Perhaps, you know, in fact, I mean, I, I argue that actually, that, Jew, that, that Jews have a, 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 pre, uh, a, 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 a predisposition, a predisposition to secularism. But the people are saying we're abandoned. We feel abandoned. We need the poetry in life. So what happens is as follows. Having tasted the tree of knowledge and sensing the rationalist elements, rejecting the world of miracles, and understanding that we have to grow up in our sense of God and can't expect that, hey, God, we need you. Come, come take care of me, right? We nevertheless say, right, we want to have a relationship. It's like the child coming home as an adult. I see this very, I see this very graphically. When you leave home, you always say, can I come home again? Yeah, you can come home again. But when you come home, you're, you're different and your parents are different. And then as you get older, the moment arrives. I remember this in my own life, when my mother was talking to me about her problems. Never happened. Never. She was there to take care of my problems. All of a sudden, she's talking to me about her problems. The relationship changed. So we went from childhood dependency to adolescent independence to adult interdependence where we come back home and where we not only take, but we also give. And in religious terminology, in mystical terminology, we not only derive benefit from God's presence, the light that shines on us, but we actually enhance God's presence 
and we take responsibility. That was one of the attractive points of Jewish mystics. They gave human beings a role to play in God's world. They, it was not just determined by God. But it, and, and think about this. If you're the image of God, because I'm going to translate. This is where I'm going in the end. If you're the image of God, in terms of human experience, not, ter not in terms of abstract argument. God's existence is a question of God's existence. We can't prove it. Because that's, that's in God, and we can't know that. That's a, that's a definitional point. All we can talk about is our experience of God. And that's what the mystics said. Maimonides didn't give us any language. They wanted to give us back the language. And in our experience of God, there's a dimension that I want to talk about because of my perspective, which says that we as the image, the, the, the inaugurated image of God, have responsibility for manifesting godliness in the world. And that our devotion to God is a way of saying, we have to make sure that God is present. Now, how does that come about? So I'm going to ask questions, and I'm going to explain to, you, explain to you what I mean by that. I have another 10 minutes. The questions are as follows. This is, talking about God has become very difficult for us. By and large, because uh, a combination of things. One is the human experience of suffering in the world. Where is God? and the historical experience of the Jews. Even given the fact that we say that God is no longer performing miracles, all the sacred texts seem to indicate that when we're down and out, God will be there for us. God isn't there for us. And you can't play games. You know, you're going to say, well, he wasn't here for the Holocaust, but he was there in 1948. Uh, he was there in 1967, but he wasn't there in 1973. I mean, what happened? So I take, take off a few days, you know? And, uh, you know, and, and, and you look, and you look at, at, at orthodox theology, you have orthodox theologians are, are puzzled, at least certainly, you know, the mainstream. Because Chabad has made all sorts of claims about God's presence. It's uh, very, very difficult. It's hard for me even to articulate these things. Because you see what happens. If you really accept this notion that everything is explainable in some way about, by, by God, so you have to explain the Holocaust in that way, and it, it becomes obscene, you know, and it becomes a punishment. What is a punishment? I mean, and, 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 it's, and then you get, you get the small-timers, meaning the Christian fundamentalists who are saying that, you know, because uh, what happened, uh, Israel suffered because Ariel Sharon made a disengagement agreement, right? They were, didn't Jerry, one of them said that. And, you know, and, and, and the Muslims, this is the way the Muslims think. By the way, that's enough of a reason. Chief, okay, exactly. I, I, I don't argue with you. I'm telling you that it's horrible, these, these thoughts. It's horrible. And reformed Jews are the ones who cause the whole, you know, get all the, it's garbage. I'm sorry to say. I know you're not supposed to say that. It's garbage. It has to be. Because I, 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 a, a religious person, how can a religious person say, you know, that God is so cynical and hateful in that way? You know, what does that mean? That's not... Not, that's not what we talk about when we talk about love and relationship and compassion. So that's one issue. The second issue that I want to say is science. You know, it's hard for us to deal with the theology as presented in the Bible, even though I've given you a developmental scheme. What, how, do, how, do we, how do we sort of back this up theologically? I've already given you a little bit of, of an explanation. But, you know, how do you talk about the plagues? How do, you talk, how do you talk about any, any of the miracles in the Bible? Uh, what does it mean? And, and, and what does creation mean? 
Did God create the world? What does revelation mean? Did God speak the words of the Torah? These are all questions that we have, to, we have to deal with. We've lost a generation of young people because we haven't been able to translate this and, and, and create a language, a framework, a way of speaking about these issues, and, and we continue on our merry ways claiming that we should be devoted Jews. Well, people have gone to university. We've sent them to university. We say, get a good university education. Learn, learn to be skeptics. So where's the room for skepticism in this, in this, in this thinking? Right, there is traditionally a doubt and so on, and, and you can point to Maimonides, okay. But begin to talk to us. So this is what I want to suggest to you, is the following. I want to go back to the traditional framework of the two dimensions of God. If you let me come to my notes, I'll, okay, here I am, okay. Let me put my book on top. The first dimension is Elohim. What is Elohim? I would claim the following. Elohim is the limiting factor. It means the following, and this is very important from my perspective. It means, I am not God. In other words, involvement religiously means that you have to say to yourself, maybe you say it already, maybe you don't even think this, I'm not God. Now you'll tell me, what are you talking about? I never think that I'm God. Uh, well, I'm not sure. We're talking about humility. In other words, everyone wants to know, why do, we say, why do we have to say hallelujah all the time? You know, doesn't God know that he's great? Does he need us to say hallelujah? No, it's not for God, it's for us. We have to say hallelujah more because we need to know that we're not in control. And we have the illusion at times that we are. The first commandment is not you must believe in God. The first commandment is don't have any other gods. And by the way, it's not just, I'm not just talking about, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not just talking about yourself. I think that's the, that's the most extreme violation. This book was written before this widespread you know, before everybody had a computer. So Kenneth Siskin, who, who teaches uh, philosophy at Northwestern, uh, published a book with a front cover. It was very thoughtful. You see, here are some Mesopotamian gods. These are in Egypt. This is an Egyptian god, and this is a Greek god. And in between is a television screen and a, a television screen and an automobile. We have a lot of gods. We worship a lot of things. Don't tell me that we don't. And even if you don't worship yourself, you worship the person who has more of these things than you do. And if you don't do that willingly, he'll make sure that you worship him. And you'll honor him, too. Because we don't honor people who don't have a lot of things, a lot of toys. You know? When's the last time you honored someone for, because of their humility? Ah, that's someone I, I, I love that. Ah, I mean, right? Now try it. I mean, try it. It's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to do. In other words, belief in engagement with God is character training. It's really learning to know I don't know who God is. There may not even be a God, but I'm not God. And that you have to say that to yourself because for time after time after time, we sin in that direction of thinking of ourselves. And, you know, and, and, and arrogance is, is, is a quality that, that emerges constantly in our lives and, and, and in Jewish life. And hubris. Look at, look, look, look at the good people, the good people who got a little money and what happens to them? And they think they can get away with it. It's all around us. And, 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 and therefore, we have to tell ourselves this simple teaching. It's about diminishing our ego and learning. And then when you, when, when you want to ask me about miracles, I'll tell you what miracles are. Heschel came to Notre Dame one morning, and he banged on the table and said, Today I beheld a miracle. Shh. I saw the sun rise. 
So learn to see the miracles in your life, which is the fact that you breathe. You know, we can all appreciate that. The plumbing is working. You know, we can walk. I just had surgery on two discs, you know, and, and, all, and, and, and things break down. And we, co and we go on. We have the capacity to go on. Life itself is miraculous. It's wondrous. Get it out of your system. Miracle, by the way, miracles are the biggest failure in, in the Bible. Three weeks after whatever it is, the revelation at Sinai, what do they do? The golden calf. It doesn't last. You give them a wow. Give me another wow. Take me to Disneyland. I mean, you know, the Bible is not Disneyland. So you see some good fireworks. Sinai was a lot of, was the biggest fireworks, you know. Right? But it's not, that's not what makes a religious personality. The religious personality is the person who can look within themselves and say, wow, this is amazing. Are you able to say it's amazing? That's what Elohim means. That I'm not in charge. It's not only what I can do, what I, what I know. There's something beyond. That's beyond me. All right. So once I know that I'm not it, and I have that sense, then I would say yud vav comes around to tell us each one of us has the capacity to be godly, to be godlike. In other words, once you know you're not God, and you've emptied out or you've diminished that sense of ego. By the way, that's what Shabbos is in part. Shabbos is letting go of your ego a little bit because, you know, you stop your productivity. You're not, you don't, you know, I, I always, always ask the students to introduce themselves. So this is what they always use. I tell them, say something personal. You know what they tell me? After two or three that try to say something personal, I'm happy to be here, whatever. You get the third one says, third year psychobiology. We have a generation of people who don't know how to talk about themselves. They can only identify themselves in terms of their, what they do, what they produce. That's what gives them meaning. Tell them, tell people there's meaning inside of them, no matter how much. Look at how we treat elderly. That's the greatest symptom of the fact that we don't respect people for who they are, only for what they have. So Elohim means look at yourself inside and don't make yourself, don't look at, what, uh, at, how you, at your masks. Take your mask off and look around and look inside. So once we do that, we can recognize the divine that's within us. That's what the yud heh vav is. And let, let me explain what I mean. Once I know that I can't be God, then I can spend my life attempting to emulate godliness. So I want to explain myself in terms of what I said earlier, but using the prayers. After the eating a meal, what do you say? What's the first blessing? And how does the first blessing end? Hazan et hakol. Hazan et hakol. Who feeds everybody. Do you actually say that? Do you say that? Yeah. You're a bunch of liars. God doesn't, every, there are a lot of hungry people in the world. You say it all the time. I not, no, you're honest people. You wouldn't say something like that, right? So, but you say it, I say it too, right? So what could it mean? Again, I'm, I'm suggesting translation in light of where I'm trying to go. Okay, so that's one, that's one. And, and there are those who say there's enough food, it's a question of distribution. But I want to, it's not enough for me, because I'm part of a tradition that imposes obligations on people. We, when we say hazanat what we're doing, it's part of, uh, of the following. There's a mirror there. And, uh, and, and that mirror, in, as we look at that mirror, we see the perfection that we projected onto that mirror. That's what we call God. God heals. God, uh, God forgives. Uh, God makes peace. God makes justice. Hashiva Shoftenu. I look at the Amida, right? And I look up there and I say, how am I doing? in terms of my responsibilities to bring those things into the world. I have an agenda. 
You can't do it all, by the way. If you do, you know, you have to focus. That's why, the, you know, it's an array. It's like a shopping list. It's a rabbinic shopping list of what's important in life. You may want to add to it. But it gives me, it gives me work to do. I, 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 I tell people something simple. It, 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 maybe it's corny. When I daven in the morning, you know, so I know it happens sometimes. I get up in the morning, and it can be that, you know, Doreen and I are rushing to get out. There could be a little tension between us. It happens, I'm sorry to say, but all right. Uh, you know, so, you know, so what often, and sometimes, you know, you, you know how people play things out. You know what to say. You don't say it. You know, you know all of us have, uh, maybe not, maybe some of us are more conscious and more blessed in their behavior. And I'm an only child, so, <laughs> and so is she, so, <laughs> you know, anyway, so, so, um, so, um, so, that, so oftentimes, what, uh, what's happened, uh, what I've noticed that's happened, I daven, and the last bracha is, Ham who brings peace to his people of Israel. So I say to myself, how can I say this? And as soon as I finish davening, I pick up the phone, and I call, and I say, you know, I'm sorry, or whatever I have to say, whatever, whatever I'm going to say. Because if I'm going to say that God brings peace in the world, I better make sure that there's peace in my home. I mean, that's the place to start. You know, I, because everybody wants to bring peace into the world. You know, let's start right, uh, right here in a little way to multiply peace. So it's a way of saying it's our responsibility. When a friend of mine was, was diagnosed with terminal cancer, Rabbi, so his son, he, thank God he survived. So his five-year-old son came to visit him in the hospital and said, Abba, where is God? So Abba said the following. He wrote it up in a column. I remember this. I've read it numerous times and publicly. He said, you know, you see that guy who comes every week to play guitar in the pediatric cancer ward? You know the doctors, he was a rabbi in San Diego. You know the doctors at Scripps who are working for a cure for my cancer? You know all the people in the shul who are filling in for me and coming home and those coming home and helping, helping Ima with meals? And, and, and he went on and on and on. And so God was present and manifest in the loving actions of the people who brought God into the world. Now, this is not a complete answer, but it gives us, it drives us. It gives us a, a way of understanding that God can be active in our lives in the ways in which we make God manifest. And it certainly is a reflection of the idea that we carry, that we carry the image of God within us. Now, I wrote here sort of like a, a, a summary statement. The idea of God, God Elo, I'm sorry, Elohim is the God of limitation. And yud heh vav -Hey is the God of aspiration. The idea of God diminishes us and elevates us. It brings us to nothingness and to majesty, to self-negation and self-affirmation. In Hebrew, to afsut efes, veromemut. Right? In God, we are ayin, nothing, and echad, one, simultaneously. What a powerful sense of God that we can carry with us. And there was a Hasidic Rebbe, and with this I'll end. You have the text, I'm sorry, you know, we can't read all the text. I, you know, uh, I, I prepared a text for you called The God of Possibilities. So what the Hasidic Rebbe says, he says as follows. When, Moses, when God sent Moses on his mission, he, Moses said to God, God, listen, this is a tough people. I want to know who you, they're going to ask me who you are. What should I tell them? So God says to Moses, tell him, Eheyeh, Asher Eheyeh sent you. I am, I will be that I will be. So the Hasidic Rebbe says, what kind of answer is that? Imagine, the people are slaves, they're suffering under Pharaoh, and they say, Moses, who sent you? And Moses says, 
I will be that I will be. They'll stone him. I mean, what, that's, they're going to accept that answer? Right? That's not what kind of answer. So he tries to understand, what does that mean? So he says, in classic Hasidic uh, manner, because he also notes that God says, Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzhak, Elohei Yaakov, right? He uses Elohei three times, instead of just saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Each one of the patriarchs had their own personal relationship with God. That's such a wonderful idea, right? And what Moses was telling the slaves was, you want to know what freedom is? First of all, God, God's name, you know what God's name is? God's name is not yet. Becoming. I will yet be. I'm not there. I'm becoming. How will I become? I will become because each and every one of you is going to relate in your own particular way and you're going to add and you're going to make God more present in the world. What an amazing idea. You want to be free? Total freedom is in God who's not encumbered and not defined and not limited. So attach yourselves to God. It's the only, it's the only thing, idea. I don't know what to call it. It's the only thing that's not limited. When you attach yourself to God, then you'll know freedom. You know who knew God certainly? There was only one person in Egypt who knew God with certainty. Who was that person? Pharaoh. Exactly. He was God. And he knew God with certainty. And because he knew God with certainty, he enslaved the people because he was God. So the, if you want freedom in the world, make sure that people learn about the route, the journey of uncertainty. I always say that there are two rabbis on the, corner, on the street corners. One rabbi says, come to me, I have all the answers. The other rabbi says, come to me, I have all the questions. The problem is that people want answers. They think that that's the way. We have to try to make people comfortable with a degree of uncertainty, with a quest, with a learning. Imagine that, with an openness, with seeing, with, with understanding, by the way. You know what? It's possible that in India, they have another idea of God. And that idea of God might enhance my idea of God. I don't have to become a Buddhist. I can remain a Jew. But I can learn from the way they look at God. And it makes sense that they would have, that would, they would have another idea of God. Why should they have my idea? They grow up in another part of the world. They see the sun differently from the way I see the sun. They look at the world differently from the way I look at the world. We need a more inclusive notion. That will lead us to oneness, a little bit of humility in our own religious understanding and an openness to other possibilities of God. What a way to bring the world to some new understanding and a sense of freedom. So to end with a quote from Heschel. Arthur Green writes, From Heschel I learned what it means to live as the image of God. His most important teaching to me, one that stays with me every day, concerns the second of the Ten Commandments. Why are we forbidden to make images of God? Heschel asked. It is not because God is beyond all images, so that no image could possibly depict God. If that were the case, he argued, images would be merely harmless, right? If God were beyond images, why should God be worried about any images? They're irrelevant. But the, but the point, of course, is, says Heschel, God has an image, and that is you. That's wonderful. You may not make the image of God because you are the image of God. The only medium in which you can make God's image is the medium of your entire life. And that is precisely what we are commanded to do. Everything you do, everything you say, each moment and the way you use it are all part of the way you build God's image. To take anything less than a full living human being, like a canvas or a piece of marble, and call it the image of God would be to diminish God, to lessen God's image. So too, all of you.
Let us strive to become active images of God and bring God to life. Thank you. We have time for questions. Yes. Maybe you take the mic, okay? I, I view religion in a different way. For me, God is two things. God is the thing which makes the wow. Wow. Okay, or makes the things for the wow. And that's, we might discover some more things, but that is not transitory. And then is the other one, which we talk about what God does, how God behaves. And that's very transitory, and that's our imagination. Because in most cases, I cannot see God doing the things we say God does. All right, so what I want to say is that it's, you're, not, you're not so far away from things that, from what I've suggested. Because when you talk about the wow, you've talked about, that's what I, how I describe the dimension of Elohim, the miracles in the world that we see, that we know that there's something beyond us. So, right? The second point that you talk about tra transit, what's tr transitory, well, I, I'm merely making the move of attributing that not to God but to us. It is transitory because we, you know, we change. Things, things are ephemeral. And we have the opportunity to represent God in the world. Okay, so, so that's, that's a wonderful point. So let me tell you something about our institutions. I learned this from my teacher, another guy, Yisrael Knoll. You know him? He's the head of the Bible department at, at the Hebrew University. Was, he's at the Hartman Institute. He's a wonderful teacher of Bible, really worthwhile. And he just had an article about him because he has all this sort of controversial stuff about the Messiah in Qumran, making a film. He did a thing for discovery. He's an interesting guy, wonderful possibility. So Knoll taught me the following. You look in Exodus, and you see in Exodus that there's a, you know, there's a tabernacle, the portable temple. All of a sudden, chapter 33, I think, in Exodus, it says, Umoshe Moshe, Moshe uh, uh, goes forward into the tent. And it describes the fact that the tent, Moshe takes the tent, picks it up, and he, and he plants it outside the camp. Um, I mean, you know what, if you, if, you, if you wait a second, I'll give you the exact, the precise reading because it's better than my trying to construct it for you. Here it is. One second. Uh, here. All right. It says as follows. Now Moses would take the tent and pitch it outside the camp at some distance from the camp. It was called the tent of meeting. And whoever sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. What's going on here? The tent of meeting, where was it? It was in the middle of the, it was in the center of the camp. There's, a, there's another a portable of a portable. It's outside the camp. Now, those of you who know what's outside the camp, outside camp is what we call liminal space. It's nishtahin and nishtaher. It's where the garbage goes. It's where the impure go. You don't have a tent of meeting with God outside the camp. So Knoll says the following. It says, Hayakom Adonai. Whoever seeks God goes into this camp. So this is the answer to your, to your point. The institutional setting for the representation of God was the tabernacle, the migdash, the, the temple in the middle of the camp. There, there was furniture, there were priests, and there was the way. You had to do the way, and you couldn't go up further than here, and they, off and they offered the sacrifices for you. But what about the person who has an inner life, who wants a personal relationship with God, 
who's not satisfied with a priest representing their interests. You don't have to wait for after the Bible to get to it, says Knoll. It's already hinted at here that there was a, temp, there was a tent in outer space, outside of normative space, where people who wanted to do their creative relationship, if you wanted to meditate in the tent, you went out to the tent. You know what was in the tent? What was in the tent outside the camp? Nothing. It was empty space. It was a, it was a, it was the, by the way, the highest achievement of monotheism. Nothing. Because for there to be something already suggests that God is represent, represented. Nothing. And it's all intimate. It's, and it's not controlled by any norms. So the point is that we have to be, we, we have, don't blame the institutions only. I mean, you can blame them, but I don't, no, no, but take responsibility for the fact that you have to stand up to the people who run the institutions and say at the same time that you have a sanctuary, which is a word that I find, uh, anyway, there's a sanctuary, there has to be also a private space where you're able to have, in every, in every re religious institution, personal institution, maybe there should be a meditation room in every synagogue. I don't know, you know, I mean, think about it. We have to think in a new way for people who don't, who, who, who can't conform. Because if we try to put everybody into the box, it's not we know it's not going to work. We've been told through, through his history it's not going to work. Yes, Harry. All right, and uh, it's, a w it's an excellent question. So first, look, I, I had to tell you this. I I'm actually, I, I lead a big service. And what we try to do in our service is we try to make sure that there's, a, that there's learning, that there's quiet time. We try to do these things. But it, it's not, it may not be enough. And you know, we can't remake everything in one day. But I'm a fan of smaller, smaller services. You can't imagine that you're going to have a, what you would call a, a meaningful experience with with a thousand people in, in, a, in a congregation. And what can a congregation do? Now, there are problems because most people don't come with those intentions. Maybe the people who have those intentions should try to have smaller services. And you don't hear it. So you don't hear the sermon. All right, that, I mean, that's a, that's a whole question. Maybe you do learning. All right, but not being able to do that, one of the things, there are other things to be done. For instance, I actually, this I believe firmly. Every one of you should come to shul carrying something to learn. To learn. Take Maimonides' Hilchot Tshuva, the laws of Tshuva. You, I, I learn it every year. It's ten chapters. It's an English translation, for sure. It's very, it's psychological, it's wise, it's religious. It's filled with, it, with contradictions about the nature of the human being and their relationship to God. The last chapter alone, talking about worshiping God through fear or love. Reward and punishment. The whole, uh, that, so just focus on reward and punishment and see what he says. My money says, if you understand this, you, re you understand the secret. I mean, he's hinting at the fact that it, th he, you can't talk about, that, about this. Uh, you have the text. I gave you the text. It's the, it's the front sheet. Then there's a book by Agnon 
called Yamim no Ra'im in Hebrew, the days of awe. It's a wonderful book. And, other, I, I, and, and there's so many, th these days there's so many resources. So make your time in the synagogue at least personally meaningful in that way. Now in terms of your children, you know, I, I, they're, they're, and, well, let me actually back up for a moment. Now, now services don't just begin with Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. There's also Slichot. So it depends what's happening for Slichot. Seems to me there's a smaller group of people. There should be learning associated with Slichot. Even there, for instance, there you have those two paragraphs. I mentioned them today. You have the paragraphs about which mention the 13 attributes. What does that mean? Adonai, Adonai, El, Rachum, Vechanun, Erech, Apayim, Rav Chesed, Vemet. We sing it all the time. And what's the source of it? You know, the Gemara says that, uh, that, 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 God saw, that Moshe saw God like a, a davening, like a shaliach sibor with a talus over his head, reciting the 13 attributes. And, and God said, Moses, if you recite them, then you'll be uh, forgiven. What does that mean? Because, of course, according to my understanding, it means you have to operationalize them in your life. You know, if you become, I thought about this for a long time, what does it mean slow to anger? What an interesting thing to focus on instead of being snapping right away. It doesn't say don't get angry. Sometimes you ha but be slow to anger. And what, 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 what are you going to work on this year? Maybe you have a meeting with your family and you say to everybody, look, what things do we think we need to improve between us and yourself? So let's set an agenda together. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking out loud with you. Because what I'm saying to you is that Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Elul, it's, it's time for inner work. So what tech, you know, we're all smart. You know, I, I always tell people, you know, you, if something is really important in your life, you prepare for it. The only things you don't get prepared for is marriage, you know, going to shul. You know, it's not a, I, I, you know, that's why we have these classes now, making marriage work. You don't get, you, you're supposed to know to get, ma get married. No? And by the way, nowadays you have two people, the, both of them have professions, and they're supposed to be able to say, oh, you know, let's have a good life together. Well, I'm going off to my meeting, you're going off to your meeting. What do we do? It's, it's a little bit more, diff more, compl more complicated. You know, and, and husband and wife, male and female, the roles are a little bit uh, uh, ambiguous. So how do you make that work? So, y so you have to prepare for marriage. You should prepare for shul. And you should think, what's what, is it, what is it that I'm going to work on? And what is it that my children could work on? And maybe you study together a little bit. I mean, I, I, again, I, you know, I, I don't have any, you know, there are, there are books, by the way. Just let me tell you, there are books, I, I forget who wrote them, but there are books with exercises that you can begin in outlining, uh, you know, things for the high holidays. It's like a workbook. You know, and peop so people are thinking about this question. Bring the workbook until, and, and by the way, and meet, I do think that it's, it's too late for this year. But get a committee that's going to meet with a rabbi and tell the rabbi what your personal needs are and see if the rabbi can address them in some creative way, either in what he teaches or she teaches, in some classes beforehand. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want I, I to tell you what the rabbi should do. I'm not a rabbi in a synagogue. It's very hard. It's very hard. But I think that you should, we, sh we shouldn't let them off the hook, the rabbis. That much I can tell you. And also that, the, that you know, the rabbis are also struggling. It's just that you have to give them some of them. It's like you have to give them permission to admit that they're struggling. Because they also have egos and they're all, they're all bound up in themselves. And are they going to tell you that they have trouble with this? They're supposed to be the rabbis with the answers. So you have to give them permission to say, you know, I, I'm also, I'm working on this. Let's work on this together.
What if the rabbi got up in front of the congregation and said, you know what, I'm having difficulty with the idea of God, and this is what I'm doing, and how I'm working on it. Or, my, or I'm trying to do tshuva this year, whatever it might be. So that tshuva becomes something real. I would tell you something about tshuva. It's unbelievable, because in the deterministic sex notion of God, then the worldview reads as follows. Kohelet, chapter 1. Dor holech v'dor ba v'ha'aretz olam omadet. A generation comes and a generation goes, and the world is in the same place. Static life. The biblical worldview says, Teshuva, ubikashtem misham. You're going to quest from there. You're going to move. Veshafta adonai elohecha. You're going to return to God, and God is going to return to you. There's dynamism. Wow. Change. New possibility. You are not who you seem to be. You could be someone else. So how are you going to do that? Maybe the rabbi has to bring a psychologist to the, to the shul to do some workshops with people and, 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 and have a conversation between rabbinic teachings and psychological teachings. So that, you know, because in the, 19, in, the, in the early 20th century, we got a new rabbi, Rabbi Freud. You know, he became the chief rabbi of all Jews. Because you know? he went inside the person. So we, we, we used Freud to go inside, and the rabbis became politicians. They became, they became outside men. We have to invite the rabbi back in to address our inner lives, our ethical, our moral lives. Right? The rabbi should be talking about, about our ethics, on, on uh, their own personal ethics on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and shake you up a little bit in every, in every shul. And the, and, the, and the board has to say, I mean, that's what's hard. We want the rabbi to do that, not say, you know, don't, do, don't talk about that, you know, you because know, uh, that may get too personal, you know. Uh, that's so, and we have to. And, and by the way, have a sense of humor. We should. I, I, I mean, I think. In other words, don't. I, I also don't take religion so seriously that you lose your sense of humor, because God even God has a great sense of humor. He gave us Purim, you know. <laughs> so, you know, so in other words, I, I think it's important to 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 have to, to see that and be human in this regard. Not, you know, I I often think that somehow the rabbi feels that he can't be human. He has to be rabbinic. Why? If the rabbi were human, the rabbi would be, one, would, be, would be so much more able to talk to us. He's one, we're, we and he, we're, we're, we're doing the same thing in life, trying to be human, trying to make life meaningful and put it together. And that's a step in the direction. I don't know. Maybe one more question or wrap it up. Yes, we have a question. Huh? What's your name, by the way? Tamar. Okay, Tamar. No, I was saying the following. Did I, was I suggesting that people bring a book to services rather than read the prayer book? I was suggesting uh, something with multiple possibilities, which is, first of all, there are many breaks in the service. Russia, and Rosh Hashanah, too. I don't know. I, I don't know what, you know, with synagogues, there are always, you know, uh, people are take the Torah is being taken out. The, things are going on. There's business going on in the shul. People are being called to the aliyot. So you look at something, right? Instead of talking, you look at something that's interpretive. Secondly, you could get bored. It's possible. Maybe the speech isn't so. I mean, in other words, it's possible. So you want to protect yourself. And thirdly, yes, I do think that for some people, the prayers don't uh, resonate, and they, and, and they do want to come to shul, 
So why should they sit with blank faces looking, uh, you know, that, that's not who they are. They should use the time constructively, absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 you know, and I say the same thing to the people who come to Hillel. I don't tell them. I tell them, bring something. You know, I jokingly say, you know, I may get boring, you know, whatever. But it's not all me. And it has to do with them, too. Uh, look, we have a traditional service at Hillel. There are people who come every year who don't know any Hebrew. Now, most of the, the we do read it, but most of the service is in Hebrew. And I wonder what people are doing. I want them to do something. Some people like the melody. But, but let them, look, you should come away from Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in some ways changed. Having learned something, having changed yourself a bit from any service. You shouldn't go to shul and leave the synagogue the same way you came in. You at least have to uh, have had some, you know, sh you, move, you moved a little bit. Friday night, you sang L'cha Dodi. Can you be the same after you sing L'cha Dodi? You know? You, what, it just, right? So, so that's, that's what I'm talking about, that you go away with some knowledge, some, something that's inspiring, that will say, I, you know, this is what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is. And also, I, I mean, I wonder, do you look forward to this period of the year? I mean, maybe, yes, we look forward to seeing family and friends and making the meal. But do you look forward to the opportunity that you have? You know, one of the things that I do that makes this come to life for me, I saw this a number of years ago, I make a list of people, on, uh, uh, I could say, it's not that long, but I make a list during the year, who are the people that I have to call to ask for forgiveness? And, you know, and, 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 and also, you know what, it's a great time, this person that I offended who was very angry with me, they're not going to say no to me. Uh, you know, ah, got to take advantage of the opportunity, get in here right before Rosh Hashanah, or, you know, and, and, and call them, and see what you can do. Uh, and then, uh, no, no, and that's for sure, that I have a long, I ha have a long list. Uh, no, no, that's right. No, that, that, that's true. No, but let me, let, me, let, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I went to shul with my father every Shabbos. What did he do? In, and I was an Orthodox shul. So what happened in between the aliyot? Right? Someone was being called up. So my father would, start, would look at the Rashi. I mean, usually he was quiet. But he would then, sometimes he would turn to me and say, Chaim, take a look at this. Chaim, take a look at this. That's what I'm talking about. You're, you're going to read, in, let's say you're going to read the Binding of Isaac. Who doesn't have questions about the binding of Isaac? So everyone should come. What? Oh, okay. That's what I think. You, you saw, oh, oh, John Levinson. Oh, that was terrific. All right. So you have, all right. No, but, 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 you know, but everyone should go. You sh everyone should, what if everybody went with a different commentary? And every year you read a commentary when the Torah was being read. That alone, for that alone I'm talking about. Okay? I don't mean that, you know, you have to make yourself, you know, walk in with a pile of books and fall and make sure they fall so that everybody notices, oh, look, you know. I, I, all right, okay. So, <laughs> Look, there's a book that was printed. Uh, you, you, know, you know the title? There's a book that has a couple of people sitting. It has a front cover with people sitting uh, uh, side by side, and one guy is going like this, and the other one is like this. Uh, it's a survival guide. It's called the survival guide for the high holidays. I forget. And now volume two has come out. And the guy who ran Cody's bookstore in, uh, in Berkeley, which closed, unfortunately, I think, used to, have, used to have the largest display of Passover Haggadot. So he published a guide to Passover, to Passover, Passover Haggadot. So we, we all, I mean, there are all these 
tools that we have to help us out if we want to, to give us ideas, creative ideas. All you need is one idea. That's what I tell myself. You read a book, it costs whatever it costs, and you get one idea. Wow, that's, it's, it's worthwhile. And then you have something that you can do and you can do with others. Thank you very much. Um, If you were with us when Neil Gilman came, he says bring a book to shul every Shabbat. So, yeah, well, he's written many of them. Do you have any books for us to bring? Have you written books? No, you're a good speaker. Doesn't write. Uh, I will tell you, I do bring books to CBI, and uh, the only thing I feel bad, I usually sit in the front row. So, <laughs> the rabbi's speech is not going well. I usually open up uh, one of Lawrence Kushner's books and start reading. Um, I, eyes, I rema eyes Remade for Wonder, I think. I find it's got a lot of short things that you could read. Maybe from CSP, I'll get some ideas and I'll email you all um, either something to read or books you can get before the holiday. And then, then we'll put a CSP thing on the front. For more information about why I'm reading during services, go. <laughs> well, um, I wanted to uh, thank you all. And Chaim <laughs> Seidler Feller told me Rabbi Spitz. It's okay. You know, uh, it, it is the, uh, it, it, you will from us. The, uh, we are going into our eighth year of CSP, and uh, it is a lot of work for me, and it's a lot of money for you guys. And I always wonder why we should continue doing it. It's, we have a, we've had 100 people. Maybe we're done. Um, but then we get a lecture like this, which reinvigorates me. I hope it reinvigorated you as well. And also, I just wanted to share a quick story. I think you received my email about uh, the unfortunate passing of uh, Jeff Siegel. Ruth and Marsh Edinger's son and uh, son-in-law. At 49, he died of a brain tumor. And I don't know if you know, but Jeff used to come to our one-month scholar programs and our summer scholar programs. And he always was, he'd bring his daughter and he'd argue with the scholars. And uh, Rabbi Spitz told me a story. He came to visit him before he died and he, he was upstairs because he, he couldn't move and he was in his bed. And Rabbi Spitz walked up the stairs and there was Jeff listening to a tape from Isaiah Gaffney, one of our scholars. And that, that reinvigorated me in a way because I felt wow, you know, to touch a person like that and, and again, to have a speaker like Rabbi Chaim Seidler-Feller touch all of us today. So I'm ready for another year. I hope you are as well. We have recorded today, and uh, we'll make it available to you. Uh, I leave you with, the good thing is, a few weeks to get ready, right? I mean, usually we're in the middle of uh, getting ready for Sukkot by now, right? It's crazy. But this year you do have time to prepare. Uh, I hope you take away some lessons from today and find something good to read at synagogue and uh, please uh, have some more desserts before you go. Thank you very much. <laughs>